0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning, church. Um, You know, by now we have all, I think, seen uh, pictures and read about the devastation that Hurricane Michael has brought to the panhandle of our state. It was the um, most destructive storm, most powerful storm to ever hit. The panhandle of our state, one of the most powerful storms to ever hit uh, the continental United States. And sadly, over this past week, I know we have all seen as the death toll has also been rising as a result of of this storm. There are so many of our friends uh, who are without power um, in the panhandle today, so many who have been displaced from their homes And I know that uh, many of you have been asking and and wanting, how can we help? How can we be a part? Uh, And uh, just want to share a couple of things with you. First, if God uh, touches your heart and you just want to to give to be able to minister to those uh, who have experienced damage from this storm, uh, one of the best places uh, to do that is uh, by giving through the Florida Baptist Disaster Relief team and there's some information there a website there you can go to find out how to pray uh, how to give how to get uh, involved and you can be confident that when you give to that uh, ministry that every dollar will go to those who uh, are in need of help uh, i'm so proud of the work that our disaster relief folks do And I know there are some in our own church family who have been uh, through all the training have been certified uh, to be able to go into these disaster areas even uh, right now. We have some from our church who just got back from the Carolinas who helped after Hurricane Florence and uh, in the next week or two they'll be deploying again uh, to some of the stations that have been set up in the panhandle to help with this effort. And I really want us to take time today, even before we open God's Word and and read it together, uh, just to pray uh, for those who've been affected by this storm, to pray uh, even specifically for some of our sister churches uh, who have been so badly damaged uh, in the panhandle. I received a couple of pictures uh, of churches. Uh, Here is uh, one picture. This is uh, First Baptist Church of Port St. Joe, uh, one of the most heavily hit uh, areas by the storm. You can see the broken steeple there. If um, You can see the picture well enough, uh, pretty much all of the roof is, is gone uh, from that church building. And a little bit in the uh, background there, if you look uh, just off to the right of the church building, you can actually see a lighthouse there, uh, and you can kind of tell how close that church is located uh, to the Gulf of, of Mexico. Uh, They were, of course, not able to worship in uh, that facility last Sunday, but that did not stop them from worshiping. Uh, They went down to the local high school there in Port St. Joe, had a worship service there, and many people from the community came out and and, and worshiped. It was just a great picture uh, that the gospel continues to move forward. Uh, Even in the face of this, here's another picture. This is First Baptist Church of Lynn Haven. And you can see the damage that this church has received. Uh, And this is, these are only two pictures, of course, of many, many more that could be shown. Uh, I received the report of one church that suffered in excess of $10 million of damage. To their facility. Uh, There are some churches who are going to be displaced, uh, not be able to worship in their facility for months and months. Uh, Some churches who are wondering, I'm sure, today uh, what they are going to do next. And uh, so let's pray for them. Let's pray that the gospel would continue to move forward. Uh, Let's pray for those certainly who have lost uh, loved ones in this storm. And if you're physically able to, I actually want to ask you to join me on your knees uh, just for a time of prayer before we open God's Word. Together. Father, we bow before you as a church family. And Lord, we want to intercede. We want to come before you on behalf of those who have been affected. Father, by Hurricane Michael, we pray. Uh, Father, specifically for those families that have lost loved ones. We pray for those who are still missing folks in their family, uncertain of what has happened to them. We pray, God, for your comfort. We pray, Lord, for your peace. Pray that you would bring believers who would encourage those who have been affected in this way. Father, we lift up so many who are out of power. Father, we know living here what that is like, and we pray that you administer to them. Give them strength, Father, and grace for each day. Lord, we pray for those who have been displaced from their homes. Father, we pray that you administer to them, that, Father, very soon they would be able to get back into their homes. Father, that the repairs would be made quickly. Father, we pray for all the disaster relief teams, Father, that are going into this area. Father, from our a denomination of churches, and Father, for many others, Father, groups from all over that are descending upon this region. We pray for their safety. Father, we pray that through the tarps that are put down, Father, through the food that is served, uh, Lord, through the love that is given, that there would be people in the panhandle who would come to experience your love in a saving way. Father, we pray for these churches. We pray specifically for these pictures we have seen today, First Baptist Church of Port St. Joe and First Baptist Church of Lynn Haven. Father, we know there are so many others, and we just pray for them today as they're worshiping, not in their church building, but someplace else. We pray, God, that. Uh, Lord, that their praise would ascend to you, Father, as a pleasant offering to you. We pray, God, that even as they're displaced from their church building, that, Father, the potential and the opportunities for them to, to minister and to share your love and to shine the light of the gospel to their neighbors, their community that is hurting like never before. Father, that that Uh, opportunity would be seized by these churches, Father, that even in the midst of their own pain and suffering and loss, Father, that they would be able to point the people around them to where hope and life and peace can be found in knowing you. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you. We pray you would use us, Father, as a church, Father, through our giving and through our going, Father, that you would use us to minister to them, to come alongside them, God in their time of need. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, church family, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter eight? Nehemiah chapter eight. We started this series called Greater Things in the Book of Nehemiah. And after taking a break for the last couple of weeks, we're back in Nehemiah again today. And we will be looking today at portions of Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. And here is the deal. By the time that we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, the the big project that we think about when we think about the book of Nehemiah, the project of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, that project has already been completed. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 6, we read that in only 52 days that work was completed, the walls were rebuilt, the gates were hung, and that part of the project is done. But then in the latter half of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah turns his attention to what was really the far more difficult work, the work of rebuilding the lives of the people and centering their lives upon The Word of God. And so let's read about it beginning in Nehemiah 8, and we'll uh, start by reading verses 1 through 12 of this chapter together. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe Stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah and Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbedana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all. The people, And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebatai Hodijah, Messiah, Keltijah, Azariah, Jozebed, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. Send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoiced greatly, because they understood the words That were declared to them. Again, the work of rebuilding the wall was a great work. We've been reading about that over the past six weeks the way that the people of God in these earlier chapters of Nehemiah, the way that they sacrificed. Uh, The way that they had to overcome obstacles and even enemies who were trying to stop them. And yet because they worked together and because God's good hand was upon them, they completed the rebuilding of the wall in just 52 days. And for the first time in centuries, the city of Jerusalem was secure. And over the past few weeks, uh, we have shared uh, with you as well about the vision that the Lord has put in front of us the greater things that we believe he has called us to of expanding this facility uh, building a new worship center to be able to reach more people uh, for the name of Christ we've shared our vision of planting one church per year starting in 2021 and how we've already begun to train church planters to be ready uh, to lead those teams uh, this is a great work also it is a a huge task uh, it's a task that, like the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, can only be done in God's power. And yet here is what I hope that we will see today in God's Word. And in the book of Nehemiah, the, the physical work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem was actually the easy part. Right? That was accomplished in a matter of days. What took years and years and was really never fully completed was the work of rebuilding the people's lives so that they lived for the glory of God. In church, it will be the same for us. The greater things that we believe God has called us to is not ultimately about building buildings. If it were, it would be a lot easier than it is. Greater things is ultimately about seeing people's lives changed that's the title of the message today greater things is about changing lives and here's the truth it's far easier to build christian buildings than it is to build christ-like lives it's far easier to build christian buildings than it is to build christ-like lives we're capable of building buildings anyone can build a building And we can designate it for a Christian purpose. That's something that we can do. But something that only God can do is to build Christ-like lives. Only God can transform people starting with you and me. And in the end, that's what we're praying for. That's what we're praying God will do here in Melbourne by His grace as the gospel is shared. That is what we're praying that God will do everywhere as we send out these church planning teams is that lives would be changed by the power and the grace of our King. And so because that is what Greater Things is ultimately about before this series is over, I wanted us to take some time and think about how that actually happens. How is it that Lives can be changed, starting with yours and mine, and then extending to everyone in the future that our, cha- our church has the chance and the opportunity to minister to. As we look at how the lives of the people in Nehemiah's day were changed, I want us to notice together three keys to lives being changed. And the first key is right there in the verses that we read in chapter 8. The first key is to read the Word of God. If you look at the end of chapter 7, right before we picked up our reading, the very end of verse 73, it says that all of this happened in the seventh month. Now the seventh month on the Jewish calendar corresponds to our months of September and October, the time period that we're in right now. And why that is significant is because it shows us that it had really only been a couple of days since the wall was completed uh, in chapter 6. And so Nehemiah and the other leaders did not waste a lot of time here. Uh, Evidently, they had already built a large wooden platform that verse 4 talks about, where Ezra stood, where the other 13 uh, leaders stood, uh, so that they could read the Word of God to the people. So the leadership had already begun to make preparations for this great assembly, this great day, and yet verse 1 tells us that it was the people of God who really initiated this. Verse 1 says that the people came together as one man from all over the area, and they gathered together in Jerusalem. And look at what it says at the end of verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So the people were asking that the Bible would be read to them. And in particular, they were asking that the law, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, would be read to them. And they were asking that Ezra, their spiritual leader, would come and would read from the scroll, from the book of the law, to them. Now, this is the first appearance of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. But, of course, we already know about Ezra from the book that bears his name. And Ezra had arrived in Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah had gotten there. So Ezra had already been working and seeking to bring about reforms. And you can read about that in the book of Ezra. But he's called upon again here at this critical moment after the wall had been rebuilt to help the people to move forward and to recommit their lives to God. And you can just picture the scene in your mind as Ezra stands before the people on this wooden platform that had been constructed for this day. There are 13 others standing on his right and his left, most likely priests who were either standing there on the platform just to lend their support to what Ezra was reading, or more likely they were there because they took turns in reading sections of the law throughout the day. Nehemiah tells us where in the city this great assembly took place. He says that it happened at the Watergate, which is one of the gates on the eastern side of the city, just above where the water source of the city, the Gihon Spring, was located. And you can just imagine standing there with this great throng of people, and they're standing outside of the gate of the city. And as they look down to their right, they can see the wall that they had just rebuilt with their own hands and their own sweat over the past two months. And then they could see it rebuilt all the way down to the right as far as they could see. They could look down to the left and see it rebuilt all the way down as far as they could see. And here they were standing and they look up and they see Ezra. And Ezra opens the word and begins to read. And I love the fact that all of this is taking place at the water gates. Because in the Word of God, water is a picture, a symbol for the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read about how our minds are washed and renewed by the water of the Word. And so here the water is pouring forth from Ezra's mouth and it is rushing down upon the people and, and, and washing them and renewing them as they're hearing the Word of God for the first time in a long time. And look at what it says in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. They stood up as if they were in the presence of the king, because they were. They were in presence of the king of kings and it was his word, the very word of God that was being proclaimed and read to them. And so they stood in reverence of the words that they were hearing and they didn't just stand for a couple of minutes. In fact, if you look up at verse 3, it says that he read from the book from morning until midday. And that would have been a period of six hours Six hours that the people stood and listened to the Word of God being read to them. I'm feeling better about the length of my sermons already as I read this. I feel like I'm jipping you. By the time they were, were we're done at 40 or 45 minutes, they were just getting started as they listened to the Word of God being read that day. They were so thirsty to drink from the water of the word. You know, yesterday at um, at Family Fest, we had a whole. A group of our volunteers, and their only job was to uh, to go around to everybody who was volunteering yesterday and to hand them cold bottles of water. I was so thankful for that team of volunteers. I had them come up to me several times uh, throughout the day. And, and the reason why we had a group of folks doing that uh, is, is, of course, because we know that in the hot Florida sun, uh, one of the dangers, right, is to be dehydrated. You're standing out in the sun for, for hours, and so we wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So we're bringing water. To everyone, but you know, if they had brought a bottle of water to me and I had taken it from their hands, but maybe just set it down on the ground or, or maybe just put it in my pocket and never actually drank from it, then you know as well as I do that I still could have gotten dehydrated, even though I had a bottle of water right here. But it's not enough to just have it in my pocket, I actually have to, to drink from it. And what I'm afraid is happening today and in the church today is that we have a whole generation of believers who have become spiritually dehydrated. And it's not because we don't have access to the Word. We have more access to the Word than we've ever had. We carry it in our pockets. Most of us have a Bible app on our phone that has the Bible in more translations than we could ever read. Right? We have access to Probably 10 or 20 Bibles in our homes. We have more Bible studies and devotionals available to us than ever before. We can listen to podcasts of, of Bible teaching anytime we want to, day or night. We can find it online, we can find it on the radio. There has never been more access to the water of the Word of God in the history of the church than there is right now. And yet, I wonder if there has ever been the degree of spiritual dehydration it's not enough to carry it with us we have to actually drink it And if we're going to see life change happen beginning with us and extending to those that we seek to minister to, it's only going to happen if we take the Word of God out of our pockets and begin to read it. The people of God in Nehemiah's day were thirsty for the Word of God. And so they came together and they listened to the Word of God for six hours. And it says in verse 3, not only did they listen to it, but they were attentive to it. You know, it's a different thing just to hear something and to actually be attentive to it. It's a very different thing. I don't know if you know what I mean. That happens to me every time my wife calls my name and asks me to help out with something around the house. I hear it, but I don't really hear it. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. I hope that's not true all the time. I'm sure it's true some of the times. But I'm afraid when it comes to hearing the Word of God that we are like that a lot of times. We hear it, but we don't really hear it. You can read the Word of God just to say you read the Word of God and then close it and go your way, but it really has made no impact upon you because you didn't meditate on it. You didn't think about it. You weren't really attentive to it. You really didn't have any desire to change anything because of it. That's not how the people of God were in Nehemiah's day. They were attentive. They wanted to be transformed by the Word, and so they were. It says in verse 7 that after Ezra read each section, that there were Levites who went out among the people and began to explain the passages that had just been read so that they understood the things that were being read to them. And verse 8 kind of sums up what, what was happening. And verse 8 is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible that describes what biblical preaching is supposed to look like. Look at that verse with me. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. So, they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So, notice what Ezra and the Levites did. They read distinctly from the book. Well, what book? Well, this book. Right? They read from the Bible, at least the portion of the Bible that they had at that time. And then they gave the sense of it, in other words, they explained it. And then they help people to understand how it applies to their lives. And church, this is what biblical preaching is. Biblical preaching is about explaining the words of this book. My job as a preacher is not to tell funny stories. My job as a preacher is not to read to you some email that I received in my inbox last week. My job is not to share my own thoughts with you. My job is simply to read from this book. To read what God has already said to us and then to explain it and to help us to understand together how we can live out the words that God has given us. That is what biblical preaching is. And I'm sure that in the future there will be some things in our church that will change as a result of greater things pray that in the future, Lord willing, we'll be worshiping in a different room, in in a larger room. There'll be more people that will be able to hear the Word of God, but this is something that I pray will never change. And church, I want you to know that my commitment to expository preaching of the Word of God has never been stronger than it is today, because I believe that the Word of God is powerful on its own that it doesn't need any help from me or anyone else, that it is a double-edged sword, that it penetrates to our hearts, that it will accomplish the the purpose and the reason for which God has sent it out. And you can see an example of that in verse 9, the tremendous effect of just hearing the Word of God. There There were no smoke machines, right? There was no loud music, right? It was not a concert. All it was was a wooden platform and a man reading from a scroll. And yet the tremendous effect that happened upon the lives of these people, it says in verse 9 that they were weeping over their sin because of how convicted they were of what they were hearing in the law of God and how their lives did not match up with that. And as we will see, there would be a day when Nehemiah and Ezra would say that it would be appropriate for them to mourn over their sin and to repent. But on this particular day, as we read in verses 9 through 12, Nehemiah and Ezra told the people that on this day, this holy day to the Lord, it was a day not for mourning, but it was a day for celebration. It was a day for joy because even though they had sinned against the Lord, God in his mercy had covered their sin. And God, in his mercy, had allowed them to come back into the land and had allowed them to rebuild the wall. And now it was almost a rebirth for them as the people of God. And and the leader said, this is a day that needs to be celebrated. And so they told the people to go home, to eat, to drink, to celebrate because they had understood the words of God. We don't have time to look at it in depth, but starting in verse 13, the people start to live out the things that they were hearing in the Word of God. And for the first time in a long time, they celebrated a feast known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a feast where they lived in little makeshift booths for a period of time to remember the time when they had been in the wilderness, in the desert, and how the Lord had taken care of them and had provided for them. And this is just an example of how they immediately began to put into practice The things that were being read to them in the law of God that they had not been practicing. And because they were beginning to obey the word and live out the word, there was an incredible joy among the people. And if you look in verse 18, you can tell that this listening to the word and responding to it was not a one-time thing. Verse 18 says, Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law, of God, Church, the principle is so simple and yet it is so vital. If we want to see lives changed, it starts with reading the Word of God. It, it starts with us personally reading the Word of God. Nothing will change your life more than developing the habit of reading the Bible every day. Let me say that again. Nothing will change your life more than developing the habit of reading the Word of God every day. And if that hasn't been your habit up until now, it's a new day today. Why not start today? If you don't have a copy of a Bible, come see us right when the service is over and we'll put one in your hands. If you've never read the Bible before, you don't know where to start, I would suggest starting in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and just begin to read it, a chapter or two a day. And read it with an open heart and an open mind and ask God to speak to you. Maybe get a journal and write down a verse or two that stands out to you. Something that God is saying to your heart. And don't be embarrassed if you have questions or you don't understand what something means. In the passage we just read, the Levites were going out among the people and explaining some of the things that they had questions about. We all have questions about the Word of God, but we have some Levites in our church. We have some small group leaders and some life group coaches and Sunday school teachers and some believers who have walked with Jesus a long, long time. That doesn't mean that they have all the answers to all of your questions, but they probably have some of them. And if not, they probably know where they can find them. And so don't be embarrassed about your questions, but let's grow together in our knowledge of the Word of God as we read it every single day. And you know, we've been thinking about what this means for our own lives and how we can personally be changed as we drink more and more from the Word of God. But I do need to mention this also. When we think about greater things and we are asking God to change the lives of other people, other people here and other people everywhere, how is that going to happen? Their lives are not going to be changed in any different manner than our lives are going to be changed. Their lives are not going to be changed if we give them our words. Their lives are going to be changed if we give them this word. And so we need to give them this Word. We need to share the Word of God with them. We need to invite them to read the Word of God with us one-on-one. Let's just read through the Gospel of John together at lunch, and let's talk about it, and let's see what God is, is saying to us. We can give them the Word by putting a sermon in their hands, putting a book in their hands that talks about the Word of God. We can put the Word in their hands by inviting them to worship. Well, they'll hear the Word preached, inviting them to our small group. So we're going to talk about the Word and how to live it out. But, but again, life change only happens happens through the word faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God that's the first key to lives being changed we have to read the word we won't spend as long on the next two keys but key number two is also important we need to remember the gospel we need to remember the gospel if you go to chapter nine look at the first few verses with me now on the 24th day of this month The children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So the days of feasting had come to an end. And this is about two days later when now they are free to begin to express their mourning over their sin. And you see that the way that they publicly display that through fasting, through wearing sackcloth, a rough fabric... From the way that they put dust on their heads. These were all traditional cultural ways of, of picturing outwardly the brokenness that was going on inside their hearts. They wanted to tell God that they were sorry for their sins and they wanted to tell God that they wanted to change, that they wanted to live differently in the future. And, and again, verse three says they did this by continuing to listen to the word of God. One fourth of the day means one fourth of the day. Awake period of the day, which would equate to three hours. They listen to the word of God for another three hours, and then they confess their sins and worship the Lord for another three hours after that. So you add those together, that's a six hour long worship service. Again, we're just getting started here, church. We might not let the other two services even get in here. We're going to be going. But that's what they were doing, a six-hour service as they they worshipped. And then beginning in verse 5, the leaders of the people began to voice this amazing prayer of confession to the Lord. And I wish that we had time to read this entire chapter, but I encourage you to read it sometime this week on your own. But I want to just give an overview of it and hit some of the highlights of it. It starts out with a statement of praise of who God is and what God has done. Look at verse 5. They say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. And so from this starting point of just praising God for who he is and what he has done, they begin to recount the entire story of the history of Israel, starting with the creation experience and then the call of Abraham and all the way to the end of 2 Kings. This chapter, chapter 9 of Nehemiah, is a summary of the whole Old Testament from Genesis all the way to the end. Of second kings and there are two main themes that really stand out in this retelling of the story of the nation of israel and first off they were saying something that was as true for uh, is as true for us as it was for them our sin is greater than we think our sin is greater than we think In verses 7 through 15, they recounted everything that God had done for Israel. How he had called Abraham, how he had made a promise to bless him, how God had rescued Israel from Egypt, how he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, how he fed them, how he cared for them for 40 years in the desert. But then they say, well, how did our fathers respond to all of that? How did they respond to everything that God had done for them? Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a leader to return to their bondage. And it didn't stop there. If you look at verse 18, it says, Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up from Out of Egypt and worked great provocations. And then starting in verse 19 and down to verse 25, they continue to speak about all this other stuff that God did for them, how he led them in the desert, provided food for them, manna for them, gave them clothes that didn't wear out, Uh, eventually through Joshua, brought them into the promised land, drove out all the inhabitants of the land, gave them stuff that they didn't have to do anything for. Gave them cisterns, wells that had already been dug. Gave them vineyards that had already been planted. And yet in response to everything that God had done for them, look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. And even still, God continued to deliver them and to rescue them throughout the period of the judges. But then look at verse 28 and 29. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. When they cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, did not heed your commandments, but sent against your judgments with which if a man does he shall live by them so again one of the major themes in this prayer of confession is how great their sin was and how particularly great it was in a contrast to how faithful and merciful God had been to them but it's easy to read all of that and say yeah Israel was just horrible I mean, how could they possibly do that? How could could they be just so sinful and and wicked and, and rebellious in response to everything that God had done for them? And that's when we need to stop and remember, how have we been any different than that? God has been so merciful to us. God has been so kind to us, so gracious to us. He has blessed us with so much. We can't even recount all the ways that he has cared for us and provided for us and held us in his hands. And yet we have been rebellious against him as well. The very same words that are used here to describe Israel's sin could be used to describe ours. Verses 16 and 17, we have been proud. We have refused to obey God's commandments. We haven't been mindful of all of God's wonders. Like it says in verse 26, we have been disobedient. We have rebelled against God. We have cast God's law behind our backs and pretended like he never said it so that we could do what we wanted to do. And all of us have been guilty of that. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's true of all of us. We deserve God's judgment. That is a part of every one of our stories. When they looked back at their history as a people, they saw how wicked they had been. And you know what? When we go back and we open up our own history books, we don't see anything different. We see a track record of rebellion and sin and wickedness against God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix that. And that is part of the gospel that we need to receive and that we need to accept. But here's the second theme that runs through this, that this is something we need to hear also. Yes, our sin is greater than we think, but God's grace is greater than our sin. And that's what we see in chapter 9. That's what we see all throughout this prayer of confession is they're confessing also how merciful God has been to them. In in verse 7, they talk about the mercy and grace of God in choosing Abraham. And of course, God has shown us that grace in choosing us. They talk about God's grace in rescuing them from Egypt. In verses 9 through 11, God has shown us that same grace by rescuing us from slavery to sin, Of you know Christ here today. And the list goes on. Verse 12, the grace of God in leading us. Verse 13 and 14, the grace of God in speaking to us. Verse 15, the grace of God in providing for us and meeting our needs and, And then in verse 17, at the end of that verse, what a beautiful description of how gracious God has been. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Now, I don't claim to know where every person in this room stands spiritually, in terms of your relationship with God. Maybe you're here today and you think, there is no way that God could save me. (laughs) I mean, all the stuff that I have done, if there's a point of no return, surely I have passed it church might be for other people this God stuff might be for other people but it's it's no way that it's for me I've done too much I've gone too far but friend that is not true listen to these words they're saying to God you are God ready to pardon ready to forgive and friend he is ready to pardon you today if you would simply cry out to him from your heart, if you would surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today and you would ask him to forgive you, he stands ready to pardon you and forgive you today if you would but turn to him. He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abundant in kindness, and he has not forsaken you. Maybe you are here and you're already a Christian, but you know that you're not where you need to be. You know that you have strayed in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in a place spiritually that you never thought that you would have ended up in, and you just don't even know if it's even possible for you to come home from the place where you are. Brothers, sister. hear these words. You are God, ready to pardon. He is ready to pardon you as well if you would simply turn to Him. Friend, God is running out to meet you today with His grace, with His compassion, with His love if you are ready to repent and to come back home. And church, when you look at the book of Nehemiah as a whole, again, building the wall was not the end of the project. This book is about more than that. And greater things is about more than buildings as well. It's about building Christ-like lives, starting with yours and mine. And how does it happen? It happens when we read the word of God, when we listen to it. It also happens when we take to heart the central message of the Bible, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, when we accept the fact that, yes, our sin is bigger than we think it is, and there's nothing we can do to fix it, but God's grace is greater than our sin. And that is the message that we will share with everyone. Everyone that we meet. And we don't have to wait for a new building to be done to start sharing it. We're called to share it every single day. This is the good news that we, we proclaim. We've seen two of the keys to lives being changed. We need to read the word. We need to remember the gospel. Here is key number three. We need to recommit ourselves to obey God in everything. So after recounting their story of how faithful God had been to them, and how unfaithful they had been to God. The people of God decide to make a new covenant with God. And you can read about it there in chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. But, but really the lead-in to this covenant happens at the end of chapter 9. And in verse 33, it's a really key verse in this section. As they say to God, You are just, God, in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. In other words, they're saying, God, everything that's happened to our fathers, the fact that we were carried off into captivity, that's our fault. You have been just, God. You have done exactly as you said you were going to do because you love us too much to let us go our own way. And then as you read on, they they also acknowledge not just the sins of their fathers in the past, they acknowledge their own sin in the present. And they say, God, the reason why we're not enjoying the fullness of our freedoms, the reason why we still have the Persians lording over us and ruling over us, it's because of our own sin, God. It's because we're doing some of the very same things that our fathers did that led them to captivity in the first place. And so at the end of this chapter, verse 38, they make a commitment. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant and we write it down. And there's power in that, writing down before the Lord. This is what I want to see differently in my life in the future. The first 27 verses are all the names of those who signed this covenant. Notice the first name on the list, Nehemiah. The governor. That's significant. You know, people won't go where their leader is not willing to go. After Nehemiah's name, you find the names of priests and Levites and finally the heads of some of the households in Jerusalem at that time. But then verse 28 and 29 make it clear that it isn't just the leaders who are making this commitment, it's all of the people. Look at those verses. The rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who were separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. So they're making a very general commitment there. All of the people are saying, God, we want to obey all of your law. We want to walk according to all of your statutes and all of your commands. But then if you read the rest of this chapter, and again, I encourage you to read that this week, they move from a place of generalities, and they start to get specific. In verse 30, they start to speak about one of the ways they were sinning against God, how they were intermarrying with people from other nations who did not worship the God of Israel which was against the law of God, marrying an unbeliever. And they made a commitment that they would not do that. In the next passage, we read about how they were violating the Sabbath law. They were coming up with little loopholes and ways to get around, keeping that one day a week holy. They were still buying goods that foreign folks were bringing into the city on the Sabbath day. And and they make a commitment that they're going to stop doing that. And then in verses 32, all the way to the end of the chapter, they make a commitment about the offerings and the tithes that the law commanded that Malachi said they were not bringing. They were robbing uh, God by not bringing their tithes and offerings. And they make a commitment to God. And they say, God, we're going to stop that. We're not going to rob you anymore. We're going to bring to you what belongs to you. Now, why does all of this matter? You may think, well, you know, these commitments that they made thousands of years ago, what does this have to do with me? They lived at a different time. They had different laws to obey than I have to obey, and that is true. But, but the principle is just as true today as it ever was. Changed lives eventually has to show up in changed behavior. It's one thing to say to God, God, I want to be different. God, I want, to, I want to change. And then to follow that up with, yeah, but God, you know, I don't actually want to change like any particular thing that I'm doing, but God, I want to change. But we don't obey God in generalities. We obey God in specificities. And there has to reach a point where we open up our lives to God and we say to God, God, what specifically in my life needs to change? And I don't know where the Spirit of God is speaking to you about right now, but just open up your heart to Him and say, God, would you just right now, by your Holy Spirit's power, put your finger on that area of my life that specifically needs to change? Maybe even just write that down right now before the Lord. But even as you do that, again, we cannot make these changes in our own power. When we try to do that, we fail time and time again. In fact, even though I believe their hearts were sincere here as they made this commitment, if if you read in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, what you find out is years later, when Nehemiah comes back for his second stint as governor, he has to deal with some of the very same issues that the people made a commitment that they were going to change here in chapter 10, and obviously some of them at least had still not changed them years after the fact, and that will happen to us every time we try to make a change change in our own power. Greater things is about changing lives starting with us, but it's not going to happen by our own strength. It's only going to happen by God's power and God's grace and God's strength as he changes us from the inside out. And that has to start, friend, with a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him yet, then you don't have the power to make the changes that you want to see change. The message today is not go out and try to live as good as you can. The message today is run to Jesus and trust in him. And let him give you the grace to change the things that need to change in your life. 2 Corinthians five seventeen: if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. And the new has come. That can happen in your life. That's what he wants to do in us. And that's what he wants to do through us in even greater ways in the years to come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who changes lives. And God, we pray you would change our lives. And God, we pray that you would change the lives of others through us as we proclaim this good news message of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray right now for anyone in this place that has not yet been made new through a personal relationship with Jesus. And I pray that God today, they would come to know you in a saving way. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus.